Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of rare disease, and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, we're talking all things adolescent and young adult rare disease. And for acronym's sake, it's AYA. So back at Stupid Cancer, we'd always say that AYA cancer wasn't better or worse than pediatrics or adult cancer. It was was just different. And the same holds true for AYA rare disease. Joining me today is Seth Rotberg, a very vocal leader in the AYA rare disease community and the founder of Our Odyssey. Seth lost his mom to Huntington's disease several years after she was initially diagnosed while he was in high school. He also tested positive for the condition, bringing challenges and opportunities to the life in front of him. His story is not unique, but his mission is to provide support and resources to the AYA rare disease community to help them reach their full potential. It's a great show, guys. Enjoy. Seth Rotberg, thank you for coming on NordPod. Welcome to the show. My first question to you, would it have been so difficult for your parents to put an H in your last name? Probably, because uh, that's what everyone else does these days is put an H and say Rothberg, even though it's just Rotberg. I say it's like iceberg, except without ice, it's rot. Yeah, I just figured like I've never heard Rotberg. Clearly, I'm Jewish. But Rothberg, that's what it is in Rothberg. Anyway, I digress. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here because for our listeners who know that I ran Stupid Cancer, which was young adult cancer, you are the me of rare disease. Young adult rare disease is still kind of crappy. And here you are. Tell us what got you into this crazy business. Well, besides, I guess, knowing the stupid cancer space. No, I'm kidding. I actually didn't know much about that actually until years later, but I, like many people, didn't really have a choice to get into this space. My mom was 
diagnosed with a, a rare neurological genetic disease known as Huntington's disease. And to kind of paint you a picture, Matthew, it's it's not only like having ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's all in the one condition, but it's someone who loses their physical abilities, such as you know the ability to walk, talk, and do any type of mo mobility, as well as a cognitive and psychiatric component to it. So my mom had these mood swings, lack of energy, she had poor concentration and decision-making and, and the list kind of goes on. And so she was misdiagnosed for probably the first five to seven years. And when her, my dad sat me down at the table to give me the talk, right. To, to tell me about it. They didn't, I think they were still trying to process it. And so I went to Google, which we all know is a good thing and also not so good thing. And so when I saw the symptoms of Huntington's disease and how it matched up to my mom's symptoms and seeing that the average lifespan is 10 to 20 years, that was kind of what I got out of it. But for those first few years learning about it, being you know in high school, I was definitely in, in denial and really just didn't want to be involved in that space whatsoever because I felt like my Friends didn't really understand what I was going through. And I don't know if, if you ever experienced that same feeling when you went through your kind of health experience and trying to figure out those next steps in your life as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a loaded gun question because, of course, when you're younger, it's a very different stage of life. I want to just chime in with a metaphor because people always ask me, at the dawn of the young adult cancer movement, which was 2005, six, seven, those three words had never been spoken in succession in oncology or medical terms, young adult cancer. It was pediatric cancer and everyone else. And once we started using those three words together, people were like, well, why is young adult cancer so much better? Or it's like, it's not better. It's not worse. It's different. And here's why it's different, because it's hard enough to be in your teenage years when you're well. But that connects to what you said before, which is you were in your teenage years, you were well, and here you are watching your mom, you and your sister, watching your mom transform. And yeah, no one's going to understand that unless their mom is going through the same thing and the same deteriorative process. Can you talk us through that sense of, identity crisis and isolation as a teenager with a parent with an accelerating chronic disease? It, it was definitely challenging for my older sister and I to, to deal with. And what kind of crosses my mind is that I had to grow up a lot faster than my peers. And so I always joke around. I have an old soul. And I was actually I've spoken with other young adults in the space or anyone who I feel like deals with a health condition. You do grow up a lot faster than the people around you. And for me, you know, I had to take on additional responsibility at home, take my mom out for errands and just do other things around the house that, again, it wasn't like too big of a, of a deal, you know, looking back. But at that time, all I wanted to do was be a high school student. I wanted to play sports you know, hang out with my friends, you know, eventually, you know, apply to college, all, all that fun stuff. But I felt like I was taken back a notch 
by that and and was definitely angry at the world of asking like why did this happen to my family why you know why did this have to happen to me and then you know the other part about it is that it wasn't until I went to college when I realized I was at risk for this disease and I had a 50-50 chance of inheriting it and the reason behind that is because do you remember by you know biology class way back with the Punnett squares perhaps where you had to match like the uppercase and lowercase to see like do you remember that at all? I think you're the first person on any show I've ever published to use Punnett squares. So congratulations on that. <laughs> we'll encourage our listeners to Google what a Punnett square is, but I think I actually know what it is, but go on. So essentially it was <laughs> the actual definition, I guess, is like that you predict the genotypes and you have like your uppercase and lowercase. And anyways, so... My biology teacher, my junior in high school, you know, I, I talked to him about Huntington's disease because it was, it was in the book when we were talking about genes and genetics. And I was taught that because the father has the dominant genes that I was in the clear. But of course, that is not how it works. And so that's why I kind of brush it off until going to college and resembling similar traits as my mom, such as forgetting an earlier conversation or dropping my phone, kind of being like clumsy. And I thought, is this Huntington's disease or is this just me being a typical college kid? Which it was the latter, but you know, it impacted me mentally and making me want to learn whether or not I should you know, go through genetic testing and, and find out if I have this gene. But the, the interesting thing is that there's probably about 40,000 Americans who have Huntington's disease and another 200,000 plus at risk. But of that 200,000, only about 10 to 15% actually go through testing. And so I was one of those 10 to 15% to go through that. But you had mentioned that it took several years for you to become even aware that you were at risk for this, or was the congenital conversation there? at the start and it was it absorbed or they just the doctors never felt like you needed to know at the time well i don't even think i was part of the conversation with the doctors or you know that i, I feel like i kind of blurred a, a lot of that out because i feel like it was just kind of my dad and my mom that were going to the doctor's visits and taking care of it and yeah i just i never really talked to them about it uh and, and it wasn't like they probably tried talking to me about it, but I was just so angry about it and not understanding it that I didn't want to deal with it. And so for me, it was just kind of like, okay, this is, this is what life is and I'm going to try to ignore it and stay away from my household so I can try to live what that quote unquote normal life is. I mean, I was kind of excited to go to college. I was an hour and a half away. So I was far enough away where I could feel that sense of normalcy but I was close enough if I needed to get back home. And, you know, for me, I, I wanted to go through testing at, at the age of 20 years old. And I went through the process and found out I tested positive for it. And at that moment, it was kind of that fight or flight mentality. I can either not do anything about it or I can get more involved. And I decided to get more involved in the community by, you know, putting on fundraising events, raising awareness and just helping make a difference in the community. 
I want to perseverate on one thing you said before, which is this idea that you're watching all of your other friends go off and live their lives, and you're stuck in this new identity that you didn't choose to be in. For me, they all went off to grad school, and I'm stuck in undergraduate, you know, barely graduating in a bed for two years with no life. And I'm like, like I said, what did I do wrong for this to happen to me? But you're in a different situation because, A, you're a caregiver, to your mom as a teenager, B, you just kind of want to live your life as a college student, but you have a 40-year-old mindset because of advanced maturity because of the crap you're going through. All of that wound up as you in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it was, it was tough. I mean, even just disclosing it to my friends when I became more comfortable sharing it, I, I didn't know how they were going to react. I didn't know if they were going to still see me for me or if they're going to now see me differently. And I actually, you know, there's a few people here and there that didn't quite understand it and thought like overnight I would like suddenly get sick. And I remember one person would just each morning text me, how are you? I'm like, oh, I'm good. How are you? Like, that's so nice of you. Not realizing why she was texting me that and having to explain that to her. And I think, you know, no one wants to be defined by their condition. And that was one thing that it is a fear of mine still because, you know, I'm, anyone can Google me. Anyone can come up because like, you know, there is no other Seth Rotberg. There might be with the H, but there is no other Seth Rotberg. And so, you know, with social media and everything, people can Google me and I'm fine with that with my story being out there. But it's also sometimes, you know, a catch 22 where, you know, if, if I'm trying to meet someone new or trying to, start a romantic relationship, it's easy for them just to Google me, learn about me, and then make their decision before even giving me a, a shot. That speaks to what we call the social footprint, something that didn't matter for me in the 90s because there was no social in the 1990s. But I remember, again, the allegories to cancer itself in young adults is nearly identical. It's It's disclosures. And you can Google somebody who may have posted a blog a couple of years ago about this cancer. And then the person they're dating finds that and they're like, Ooh, do I, do I really want to see this person? And how do you disclose that? And if, does it get oogie? That's a word I just made up. What drives relationship building when you're, you're in your formidable years. Plus I want to talk about this. Here you are staring on the barrel of knowing this is going to happen to you with near all certainty, how do you live your life knowing that there is, I would say a finish line, but that this is an accelerating process for you? I'll do my best. I know that was only one question, but I feel like there's another part of that earlier that I needed to just address, which, you know, it is that moment of like Google searching someone, right? And, and then it's not even that it's, it's Google searching the condition, just like what I did when I was 15. And I was like, holy crap, this is a lot. Now imagine someone that you're trying to connect with or meet and they do the same thing and they say, holy crap, that's a lot. Or they see a YouTube video that may or may not portray what the condition is. And so, you know, I've, I've dealt with it where people are like, wow, this is a lot. Like that's scary. And I was like, yeah, no crap. It's scary. I, I get it. I'm living it. And to kind of go to your other point is, you know, I have my tough days. It's, it's not an easy thing to grasp. And, you know, I'm trying to 
essentially prepare for life one day with a, with a rare disease after watching my mom deal with it for 17 years and passing away six years ago, you know, and, and seeing other family members, other friends who either are slowly getting worse and worse or have unfortunately passed away. And so it, it is a scary thing. I mean, it's something that I've realized I need to acknowledge, but I've also learned that I can try to prepare life for the future so much, but then I'll end up losing out on kind of the whole idea of living in the present. And I'm trying to remind myself of that each day of like, yeah, I could prepare for the next 20 years, but what do I want to do today to enjoy today or, or enjoy the next two weeks or the next month? Of course, in a non-COVID world, but you know, these are kind of the things I'm trying to practice and really try to better understand on, on how to live in the moment and then also just how to make sure I seek out the right uh, support, not just peer support, but that professional support too uh, when it comes to therapy or just talking to some, a professional who, who can help guide me along the way. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Seth, picking up where we left off, most people that start social good efforts and nonprofit organizations are born of their condition. I started mine 10 years after I was sick because I didn't realize that there could be something for young adults. And I was told that if, if, if a me in 2006 was diagnosed with the same thing as me in 1996, I'd have the same crappy, horrible six months to live experience. I was like, that's not okay. And that's why I joined the nonprofit universe. But rare disease is different. There's no, it's going to be gone one day. And you decided to do something about this and you started our odyssey. Talk us through that decision process. 
It was it was definitely a tough decision. And to take a step back, I actually went to grad school to get a master's in nonprofit management, which I call kind of the the business side of, of nonprofits. And I, you know, my first class, the professor was like, and here's why you shouldn't start a nonprofit because there's millions that, yeah. I'm sorry. No, but that's exactly it, right? Like, here's why you shouldn't start a nonprofit because there's millions of nonprofits out there. And I will say, I, I did listen to, you know, your own podcast, uh, bringing in one of your colleagues talking about kind of the business side of nonprofits and understanding that. And I, actually enjoyed that but I actually never thought I was going to do this I never wanted to do it but what I learned after I started connecting with young adults in the rare disease space was a couple things one is that there's actually no kind of data out there for young adults living with a rare disease and so I was like all right that's interesting like we don't even know you know, the impact it has on young adults besides, for the most part, we do look at transitional care from pediatric to adult care. But the other part was trying to figure out, okay, well, there's these annual conferences and conventions and you meet up with people and you connect, but then what's that follow-up after? Because after, after you go back home, you're kind of back to reality and you're saying, well, well, now what do I do? And for me, it was kind of like, okay, well, let's do something about it. Let's see. First, let's survey the young adults and ask them, are they interested in peer-to-peer support, both in person and online? So I put together my own survey and asked the young adults. And I think it was like 65% said, yeah, I want in person. Another 60% said, because uh, we gave them multiple options, like another 60% also said they wanted online support too. And then I asked, okay, are you comfortable connecting with young adults who have a different rare disease? And 85% said, yeah, I want it. I want to do this. And so I I looked at the market. I said, okay, is there anyone else that's providing this year-round support for young adults? And our age bracket is 18 to 35. I know, I think in in the cancer space, it's 18 to 39. And we... You know, if they're 36, 37, 38, we're not going to, quote unquote, kick them out. Um, You know, that's just not our thing. But we kind of looked at this was kind of the age range of of people who took our survey and people that we were talking to. So we just were like, let's stick with this. But Well, the older folks will just feel young. Exactly. Yeah. And I think they can also perhaps teach the younger folks, but they can also learn from one another and really just again, I I was hesitant to even start it because I wasn't sure if this was something that I selfishly maybe wanted or if it was something that young adults wanted. And again, after doing a survey and then speaking with young adults from over 65 different rare diseases and I'm saying, yeah, I, I, I love this. I would love to connect with people, you know, outside my disease state, but also connect beyond kind of transitional care. So let's talk about dating. Let's talk about how to talk with friends about it. Navigating your career, college planning, family planning, uh, figuring out health insurance, like how to just kind of fit in into society. 
And that was kind of when we realized, like, if we don't do this, you know, who knows if or when this will be done. I agree completely. And again, I'm going to keep just saying this over and over again. The parallels to young adult cancer are are nearly identical. Obviously, the biology of what's wrong with you is, is, can be different, but we had a saying at Stupid Cancer early on. One of the reasons why it, I think it worked was because at the time, cancer was very body part specific. And if you didn't have lung cancer, get off my lawn. If you had colon cancer, you're going to go over there with those kids. And we were egalitarian. And the man- manifesto was like, you know, we don't hold anyone's disease against anyone else's, and it's not a competition about body parts. But the other thing we said, which really resonates back to me from what you just said, is that it's it's rarely about what we have when it's more about what we have in common. And who's to say that you can't learn from someone on the life hack of a job opportunity if you had a different rare disease? It's the same way to share I'll just say life hacks again, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just how do you navigate these different parts when you live with a a rare disease? And we've had some great conversations. And kind of to give a quick glance of like kind of the programming piece, prior to COVID, we're doing these in-person meetups. And we call them meetups because they're a way to socialize, to network, to connect, to really feel empowered. Versus, you know, the whole idea of a, a support group. And you hear that, especially as a young, young adult, and you may say, well, I don't know if this is for me. Or, you, or your first thought is, okay, support group, that means it might be in a hospital setting or has to be in, the, in a quiet place. And, you know, oh, it means I have to share my feelings when in reality, it's like, no, you just chat with people, connect, network, learn. So we're hosting these in-person meetups. And then we're planning on virtual meetups either way. And then COVID just kind of accelerated that and, you know, brought us to where we are today, where we host these virtual meetups where young adults can connect with one another. Uh, We've, I think, connected now with young adults from over 35 or 36 different states and uh, several several different countries, even though we're, we're trying to stay in the U.S. for now. But the other aspect is we try to highlight young adult stories and then also have these topic specific meetups addressing these specific unmet needs of young adults. So that's kind of where we're at now, but you know, we're still, we're still in what I call the infancy stages. And I'm sure you can agree, you know, we were founded in June of 2019. So, you know, we're in 2021 now and still trying to continue to grow. I want to focus a little more on what we used to, I don't think we can get away with this anymore, but we used to call the long-term pediatric survivors, of which I was one, the Gerber graduates, and that there was a huge movement in the very early 2000s that finally recognized that pediatric cancer was not nearly the death sentence it used to be, and all these people who were diagnosed in in their single digits and teens were now in their 20s and 30s with all sorts of crap, because... It's a good problem to have that you're alive, but at what cost were you made alive? So this transition from teenager to 20-something or from single digit to teenager is something you really focus a lot on. Yeah. I mean, I would say more for us, you know, our focus is more, yeah, that that teenager or when you become a quote-unquote official adult. I think the reason why we don't go under 18 is just in all honesty is 
you know, parent, parent and guardian, kind of that whole aspect of things. But there are other kind of resources out there and other, what I've seen other organizations do to help support these teenagers or, uh, you know, young children. And, you know, with, with rare diseases, you know, yeah, there, there are only about, I think, 5% of the 7,000 plus rare diseases that have FDA approved treatment. But, you know, these, these children are now becoming young adults and realizing, okay, how do we activate them? How do we empower them? How do we really shape the future leaders of our healthcare community? And that's kind of where I feel like our odyssey can play a role is, hey, we're going to help provide that social emotional support and help really activate them to become leaders within these different communities. So let's spend our remaining time discussing one of your blog posts and the name was, It's Okay to Be the Guinea Pig in Research. Now, guinea pig is its own stigmatic word because it means you're being like alien poked and prodded for some experiment somewhere. But that's not really the case. I know that's not what you meant. But tell the listeners why it's not something to be afraid of. It's not a boogeyman giving of yourself to help others. Yeah, and you're totally right. And I think that's that's always the challenge that I've learned is no matter what you put out there on social media or just anything, you know, blog, like people are going to see it from their eyes and their point of view without simply asking at times, what did that mean? And for me, what I meant by that, and I was actually kind of quoting what I've heard in the past from other leaders in, in our community is that if an individual doesn't participate in research, we're not going to be able to advance and find effective treatments and collect the data we need to make a difference. And I'm not saying it's that easy to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make this decision. Or if you're a parent uh, and you have to make a decision for your child of, hey, I want you to enter this clinical trial, because that might be your only option. And I think that's kind of what I'm saying is, is looking at what are your options if there's only one and, you know, it, it's, it's going to be tough either way. But understanding the, you know, risk versus benefits and understanding the role that each, each of us plays in research. I mean, for me and in, in the Huntington's disease space, because I am pre-symptomatic but still guaranteed to get it, I don't qualify for any of these uh, clinical trials. I mean, when it comes to more of these observational trials, I do, I can participate in those, but these more interventional ones where, you know, they're injecting a drug or placebo, I, I can't, I can't participate. And I think it's important for my voice to be heard because if I'm going to take that treatment one day, I need to make sure, is this too burdensome or is this manageable? I, I've heard it from young adults where they take a treatment and not realizing when they go to college that if they miss their dose, it has a huge impact on them. And I think that's like the big thing is how do we do a better job at one is, is the education piece, educating people on what it means to participate in a trial. And then also educating people on, on the, the medication and understanding, hey, if you don't take this, like here's the potential side effects, here's the potential challenges you might face. So that's kind of where my approach was of saying, hey, like I wanted to be able to play a role in research one day, if and when there's a study that I can participate in, 
my thought is, yeah, it's, it's gonna, it might be a tough decision, but it's not, sometimes it's just not about me. It's about the, the larger community and the difference I'm making for them. He walks the walk. He talks the talk. Seth Rotberg, adolescent and young adult rare disease advocate and the co-founder of Our Odyssey online at www.ourodyssey.org. Seth, thank you for coming on NordPod. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.